Don had said that uh, this is one of the shortest of the psalms. Somebody told me, by the way, right before I we sang, that uh, not to scream this week. I was, I was too loud last week. I said, I woke somebody at the table up. And uh, they said, you normally, when you speak quietly, you have a mellow voice and you can put people to sleep. And it's not fun when you get loud and you wake people up. <laughs> I mean, this is the first person said that. And I said, well, I realize that a lot of people in this class sleep, but it's because about 90% of them are on high blood pressure. <laughs>
and the United States of America. It's a nation's proclamation that God come and help a country. So this is the nation on its knees praying on behalf of its king. Look what it says. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The you there is King David. Which tells us that David has been praying. And now the nation says, now may the Lord answer you. They're praying in a sense uh, on his behalf. Answer you when? In the day of trouble. That's the upcoming battle. Uh, it's called a day of trouble because it's going to be a very difficult battle. May the name of the Lord of Jacob defend you. Now this is one of those parallelisms where this second line basically says the same, means the same thing as the first line, only in different words. Uh, the name of the Lord of who? Jacob. Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. Just as God helped Jacob against his enemy. In fact, his first enemy was his brother of the flesh, Esau. Uh, God, as Jacob wrestles, God answers Jacob. And he delivers Jacob from the hands of his enemy. And through Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, and God builds up a nation for his name. And so they pray, may the name of the Lord, or the God of Jacob, do what? Defend you. Defend you. Because you're going into war. So we need somebody who is on our side. Verse 2. May he send you, that's God, may he send you help from the sanctuary and strength, strengthen you out of Zion. Again, another parallelism. Line 1 and line 2 basically mean the same thing. So look at line number 1. May he send you help from the sanctuary, strengthen you out of Zion. Now, it's not talking about the sanctuary or the tabernacle that is in Jerusalem. Now, there was a tabernacle when David lived. There was a tabernacle, and there was a holy of holy in the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. And many times, the Jews would direct their prayers toward the tabernacle and later toward the temple because that's where God's manifest presence was on earth. But this isn't talking about the sanctuary in Jerusalem. We know from verse 6 that he's talking about the heavenly sanctuary. Because he says in the middle of verse 6, he will answer from his what? Holy heaven. So this is talking about the heavenly sanctuary. And look at verse 3. May he remember, this is what the people say about David, may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifices. In the past, David has made many offerings. He's brought those offerings to the altar and these people are saying, the nation says, may he remember your offering, may he accept your burnt sacrifice. That word accept, by the way, uh, is uh, in the Hebrew means literally turn to ashes. Turn to ashes. May he turn to ashes your offerings or your sacrifices. The way that the Jew knew that his sacrifices were acceptable unto God is that God consumed them right there on the altar with his fire. And if they were consumed, that means God accepted your sacrifice and your offering. And that's why when Elijah <clears throat> confronts the prophets of Baal, what does he cry out for God to do? 
send fire down from heaven. He said, and whosoever God answers by fire, that's the God. The word said. And so they cried out, oh, gods of Baal, accept our sacrifices. No fire. But then Elijah calls upon God. Fire comes down. Burns to ashes. That's what that word right there except means. word. Very interesting. So in the past, we see that David's heart was in such a condition. He was a man after God's own heart. That he would come and bring his sacrifices to God, place them on the altar, give them to the priest to be placed on the altar, and God accepted David's sacrifices. So we know that in the past, God's been very pleased with David. Man after God's own heart. And then it says, Salah. Right at the end of verse 3, which no one knows what it means. Uh, we think that it means it's a musical notation that David puts in there for that chief musician to follow. And it could mean that when you compose the music to the psalm, at this point, leave a space, a pause. Let, let, it, let it sink in for a moment. Let the people who are in worship think about that, or it could be another kind of musical notation that means like, uh, allow the music to go down low, or allow it to go up high. <laughs> We're not sure what that means. Now look at verse 4. May he grant you according to your heart's desire. Well, what does David desire right now? Yeah, he wants to uh, victory in the battle, right? So we know that's one thing that he desires. And then, May he fulfill your purpose. Again, that is uh, parallelism. Uh, what is David's purpose? Well, it would be to win the battle. Now, that would be the immediate purpose. But what's David's ultimate purpose, his ultimate plan, his ultimate strategy? It would be to govern this nation and lead it in worship of the one true and living God and not get off course. And so this is what the people are praying for, uh, that Israel will be... That David's purposes for that nation will be fulfilled. His plans, his strategies, that Israel will be an obedient people of God. Eventually they stray away from God. And then, verse 5 says, we will rejoice in your salvation. <clears throat> that word salvation would simply mean deliverance. Don't think of it as spiritual salvation. God is going to come in and he's going to deliver you from your enemy. You're going to win the battle. And when it happens, we're going to share in that victory. You know why? Because we've been praying for him. Uh, it's not just David's victory. So they sense that there's going to be, that they have a share in this because their prayers have been answered. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Not only do they have confidence that God is going to bring about the victory, but they say, we're going to get behind you. And here's how they're going to get behind David. They're going to set up their banners. They're going to set up their standards. This must be Banner Sunday. You know, talk about the Star Spangled Banner. And the banners and the, the music this morning in the church. Well, here's banners right here in this song. And they said, we not only have prayed for you and know that God's going to give you the victory, but knowing that, having that confidence, we're going to, what does it say? Set up our banners. Uh, we're going to get behind, you know what a banner is? That's a standard that you would put into the ground. It was used for a couple purposes. Those flags and banners and standards. One, it was used to encourage people. When you see that flag, you get encouraged. 
produces motivation. And the people would get behind that banner. So when Francis Scott Key looked out, he was on the ship and he looked out across the harbor in Baltimore and he saw the flag still waving. He writes the song, The Star-Spangled Banner. He looked through the night in the mist, and there it was standing, and he knew. When he saw that standard, that flag standing and waving, what did he know? America had won the war. There, this standard is an encouragement, and they said, we're going to set our standard with you. They're getting behind David. And the standard also was used to distinguish. Here is an American flag that tells you if you get behind that standard, that says you're an American. If you get behind the flag that has a sickle, that means you're something else. Get behind another flag that is red and green and white, that may mean that you're from Italy. Flags or banners distinguish people. And Israel had 12 tribes, and each one had its own banner, and it set it up. then the people from that tribe would get behind that banner and they would march in the war behind that banner. And they are basically saying to David, we're getting behind you. We were looking at the flag today in the church. I was thinking of uh, George Smith who happened to be sitting next to me with Iwo Jima. And what did the soldiers do? Got up on the hill and they put that banner on the ground, that standard, that American flag in it. It caused that encouragement, and they identified with that. That's what we have happening here. And then they say, may the Lord fulfill your petitions. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. Which takes us full circle. All the way back to verse 1. May the Lord answer you in your day of trouble. Look at the end of verse 5. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. In other words, God saved the king. God saved this nation. Now all this is done, it says in verse 5, in the name of the Lord. See, end of verse 1, name of the Lord. Middle verse 5, name of the Lord. They are fighting in the name of the Lord. And that's why they know that if God gets behind them, they can't lose Remember David when he came up against large odds as he fought Goliath? The Israeli army were afraid of Goliath and the giants of the Philistines. And what did David say? I come in the name of the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Joshua, in the name of the Lord. So the Lord marched around that wall seven times. And guess what? It came tumbling down. So... Remember the Midianites when Gideon fought? The sword of the what? Lord and Gideon! Coming in the name of the Lord. So there's a great amount of confidence here. So we've come full circle. And this shows that uh, the fact that he says, May the Lord, the people say, May the Lord fulfill your petitions at the end of verse 5 means that David's prayers had preceded theirs and theirs had followed David. Now I also want you to notice that in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you see the word may. May the Lord. May he. May he. May he. May the Lord. Five times. Each one of those represents an intercession on behalf of the king and on behalf of the nation. Now, the next section, beginning in verse 6, 
David, the king, voices his certainty. Look what he says. Now I know the Lord saves his anointing. Now I want you to notice the change in pronouns. Do you see that? In verse 5, what is the pronoun? We, that's plural. For five verses, the nation is praying. But beginning in verse 6, there's a contrast. David now speaks, and he says, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. Now the word anointed there is simply a word that's used interchangeably, interchangeably for king. You know that from when we saw Psalm 2-2 last time. It says that uh, the king is called God's anointed. And so what David is saying is, I know the Lord saves his king. Now notice saves there is present tense. Do you see that? This is David's present knowledge. He's praying, the people have prayed, and now David's just making a statement. saying, I know the Lord saves the king. The reason he does is because the Lord is appointed to him. So David affirms that God saves. Okay? That's his present knowledge. Look. Present knowledge. Now look at the rest of verse 6. He, what? Will, that's in the future, based on what David knows about God, he saves. In the future, he says, he will answer from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. He knows that God is going to answer in the future and respond. He's going to do it from heaven. He's going to break in time and space. He's going to come down and he's going to rescue them and deliver them from their enemies. Uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about this is the kind of thing that we're supposed to do. Uh, Paul said that our citizenship is where? In heaven. From whence we look for our Lord's return. And when he returns, he's going to destroy all the enemies. So we can apply all of these lessons that you see here uh, to our own situation. Now we come to verse 7, which is the most famous verse in the psalm, and it's one that you know. Here's what he says. David says this. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So, we see, a, we see a contrast there. You see that in verse 7? See that word, but? So let's look at the contrast. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Some trust or boast in chariots and horses. But, we're not trusting in military might and equipment, but we we remember, which means what? If you remember something. You look back, and we remember what God did, what happened in God's name in the past. Based on that, we, right now and in the future, when we get to this battle, we're going to trust God to do the same thing that He did back then. So there's the contrast. Now look at the contrast again, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and horses. Can you think of a time in Israel's past when enemies trusted 
and chariots and horses. Just think back to the Exodus. Yeah, Pharaoh. Pharaoh trust and his chariots and horses. Now the chariots, by the way, were the ultimate war machine for those days. They weren't just means of transportation. Horses were means of transportation. Chariots were war machines. And on their wheels they had spikes that if they came up next to you, they could just tear you apart. And underneath they had sharp blades. So that they ran you over with the horse and it got you and it didn't kill you. The chariot went over you and you were shredded. It turned you into mincemeat. So what we have here, this, now this is a good statement for nations, by the way. Israel was called by God to be a holy nation. And not like the other nations, which trusted in horses and chariots. Israel said the battle is the Lord's. They were never to go into battle unless God said go into battle. Boy, that would be a lesson, wouldn't it? To follow? An example to follow? And they trusted in God. They didn't trust in the chariots. And God would always give them the victory because he delivered with his strong right hand. They saw God as the one who was wielding the sword. And so Pharaoh and Egypt trust in the chariots and their horses. But David says, we remember what happened to them. See in verse 7? But we will remember the name of the Lord. Because based in the past, we know what he did, and we're going to go ahead in the future trusting in the Lord. And those chariots and horses were no match for the Red Sea. And so the Red Sea just closed in on them, and just like that, Israel had won the battle. Now look at verse 8. He's still speaking about the past. I think he's speaking about the Exodus event. Pharaoh. They have bowed down and fallen. That was it. Just like that. Fallen. That means dead, by the way. That means they tripped and they fell and they got back up. They didn't get back up. Now look at the contrast in verse 8. But we have risen and stand upright. So who's left standing at the end? Israel or Pharaoh's army? Israel. And David expects now, with full confidence, based on his prayers and the prayers of the nation, that God indeed is going to answer, he's going to save the king, he's going to save the nation. And in the end, even though these enemies who are not identified, we don't know which battle this is, are trusting in their manpower and their equipment, David says, we're trusting in the Lord. And in the end, they too will fall down and not get back up, and we will stand up. So that's David's voicing his confidence that the Lord is going to save. And by the way, that word save is in there many times. You say it's uh, save the king, save your anointed, verse 6, saves the anointed, so on and so forth. So, uh, but it means deliverance, okay? Now, look at verse 9. This is the third section. The people respond. And here's what they said. Save, Lord. That means deliver, Lord. Give us the victory, Lord. Uh, maybe the shortest prayer in the Bible. 
save, Lord. Sort of like Peter's prayer when he decides to get out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus and he starts to sink. He just cries out, save me, Lord, help! That's all it means. And so the people respond after David says, hey, no one's going to be standing. And the people say, Lord, save, save, deliver, Lord! Is there an exclamation point there? I think there is. My Bible has an exclamation point. It's sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement. I have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves! Jesus saves! That's what they're doing. It's a response. Now look at the end of verse 9. May the king answer us when we call. Which king? Ah, uh, change kings here. Does your Bible have a capital K for king? You might do that just to let you know that this is a change of king. You see that word may there? That's the sixth may. Uh, showing that the people again are interceding and they are crying out, May the king answer us when we call. Now this is very important because Israel, when they wanted a king, the first king they got was King Saul. Remember him? And when they told Samuel, we want a king, Samuel said, why do you want a king? God's your king. And they said, we want a king like the other nations. One, of, one who will protect us. One who will win our battles for us. Hey, you put your faith in the arm of the flesh and somebody who can rally troops around him, you're in real trouble. So God gave them one like that. And then God gave them one who was a man after his own heart, who realized he had no power. And we see that with presidents, don't we? They think they have power when they step into office. They have absolutely no power against forces that are beyond their control. Whether it's a hurricane or whether it's an invasion. Or just, what do you do? No, no power. David realizes that. So David calls upon the Lord and the people call upon the Lord. And they are recognizing who the real king is. The real king is Jehovah, God. And so they say, may the Lord answer us when we call. So the person they go to is the real king. And this is what the kingdom of God is all about. God reigns. That's the message. God reigns. And you need to realize God reigns. And you need to come under his reign. And how do they come to God? It says they call. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Say and what do they want God to do? Look what they say. Answer us. Deliver us. So although they realize that David is their earthly king, they realize that God is the real king. And so this is the one in whom they put their faith. In the day of trouble, there's only one place to put your faith. Otherwise it's misplaced. And that is in the one true and living God. King of the universe. Even King David was his faith. So that is what this psalm calls us to do. Now, let me just show you something else. Of the commentaries that I 
consultant this week, most of them call this a messianic psalm. And it can be interpreted that way. And I want to show you how it's interpreted quickly that way. Give you a messianic interpretation. Uh, here are the people crying out, and this would be like Jesus' disciples. You can look at it, put it, put it in the context of Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? Pray. And then what does he call his disciples to do? Pray. He prays, calls them to follow up and pray. So this would be looked at upon that way. Now they pray a little bit, and then they go to sleep. Okay? But here's, the, here's what they would pray. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Jesus is going to face the cross. That's his day of trouble. What does he say? Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass by. Remember all those kinds of things. Just think about this. Now, I don't particularly like this interpretation. But I want to show it to you because I think it's important to see it. May the Lord, may the name of the God of Jacob defend you. And so, Jesus doesn't try to defend himself. He's going to trust God to defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, from heaven. May he strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember your sacrifices and accept your burnt offering. And Jesus was always obedient to the God. To God. And he did all the Jewish offerings as well. I'm sure that they were acceptable to God during his life. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill your purpose. What was Jesus' heart's desire and purpose? He was willing to die, but his heart's desire and purpose was to basically save not just the nation, but basically offer salvation to the world. Okay, so this is how this interpretation would go. We rejoice, verse 5, in your deliverance. We rejoice in your deliverance. And the name of our God, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. And so here we see that uh, they're saying basically that, that you are going to be delivered. Was Jesus delivered from that day of trouble? He died, but then what happened? He was resurrected. And guess what? We set up our banners behind him. And we say, okay, we're behind you, Lord. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Did Jesus have petitions? Yes, he did. He said, when you pray, just say like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May the Lord fulfill all his petitions. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And yes, he saved Jesus, the king, our king. He will answer him from his holy heaven, saving him with the right hand, with his right hand of strength. Rome could not conquer Jesus. He came out of the grave. God raised him from the dead. Some trust in chariots and horses, just like the Roman Empire, Imperial Rome. But we remember the name of our Lord. They bowed down and fallen. Every king and kingdom fall down. But we have risen and stand up. When Christ comes back, all the kings and the kingdoms will be defeated. The guests will be standing up in the end. We will we'll be raised from the dead. Even those who have died will be raised from the dead. And we'll be standing up. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. So that's the Messianic interpretation. Now, the reason I don't particularly like that interpretation is because if you interpreted it that way to the nation of Israel when it was written, they had no idea what you were talking about. There was no Jesus around that. So what we try to do when we try to uh, interpret the psalm, for the most part, is we try to take the psalm and say, what did it mean to the people who read it the first time, the original audience? And what did the author intend when he wrote it? And then we can apply it. So we can make a messianic application. But in reality, this is 
the application I'd like to make is what to do in your day of trouble when the enemies are so big and the odds are seem to be insurmountable. What do you do? You pray. You need others to pray for you. You have confidence that God delivered in the past and he will do it again. And we go out and we march in the Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 21. Second Psalm, because we'll study Bible doesn't say anything about it. We'll do that. And then Psalm 22, that great psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can take this word and we can apply it to a nation. We can apply it to the church. You have made us a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. The church needs to be praying that it will trust you and not trust in the arm of the flesh. We can apply it to our own lives. And then, Lord, one day we know that all the nations will crumble. Only those who have heard the faith and you will stand. So Lord, help us to apply these lessons to our lives, to our church, to our class.